Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Sociology podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Curtis Smith. He is assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Bentley University. We will be discussing his newly published book, Homelessness and Housing Advocacy, The Role of Red Tape Warriors, published in New York by Routledge Publishers, 2022. Curtis, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar that you would become as an adult? Well, I think that's a great way to start off because I'm somewhat unique in um, uh, the research that I do because before I um, went into academia, I was a social service worker, um, specifically an outreach worker. And I describe uh, my attraction to outreach workers as respondents in uh, my research because they have a unique um, they have a unique role because they're not at one specific location or one specific service or another. They kind of bounce between um, and make referrals to the services from the streets. So they're the people that go under the bridges and out into the public parks to strike up conversations with people that are experiencing homelessness. And, you know, that takes a a little bit of finesse to even broach that kind of a relationship and uh, earn the trust so that someone then will um, divulge the information uh, to the outreach worker, um, you know, about themselves so that the way the the outreach worker can then make an appropriate referral and say, you know, I know that um, based on your situation, you may be able to ideal get ideal services um, over here across town at this uh, this place. And I can even give you a ride over there if you'd like. So it involves a lot of building trust with um, what are called the clients. Once the, once they're uh, on somebody's case, caseload, they're a, they're a client. And so um, the person who is experiencing homelessness becomes a client, is referred into services um, based on their situation from there. And then outreach workers also are in a role where they um, follow up and uh, sort of, you know, if, if the person goes missing off of a uh, off of uh, a case manager's uh, caseload, outreach workers uh, might then uh, keep an eye out on the streets and then bump into them again and sort of, uh, you know, um, refer them back in or make make sure that the situation is kind of um, uh, whatever whatever happened whatever. Um, you know, need that the person felt they might not be getting or uh, whatever the situation might be, they kind of patch up the uh, relationship with the uh, services and get them back into services too. So it's a really interesting situation that outreach workers do. Um, I was an outreach worker in Cincinnati, Ohio, um, in Northern Kentucky. I ran a few, few programs um, also in uh, Phoenix, Arizona and um, El Paso. I've been working with uh, people experiencing homelessness since 2002. Um, I continued working um, in El Paso, Texas during my master's uh, with people experiencing homelessness and um, also in Salt Lake City, Utah, where I got my PhD and now I'm out here in Boston. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Well, I think that's, I think that's a great question because, um, because of my unique background, I 
specifically during my master's, um, I was reading all of the uh, peer-reviewed research on um, homelessness, and I started noticing some of the shortcomings. <laughs> um, some studies uh, were focusing in on one demographic and then generalizing to the uh, larger homeless population, and they didn't seem to be aware that they were, had even sampled uh, they'd limited their sample to specific demographics and then found a prevalency, a high prevalency of that demographic. And I kept thinking to myself as, you know, with my background in outreach work, um, I knew the funding sources and I knew, I knew how to speak the jargon. And so I would look at studies and they would find, for example, high rates of uh, substance abuse or mental illness. And I would think to myself and tell my advisor, well, that's what that service does. They obviously went into a shelter plus care funded um, shelter, and, and then they found high rates of, of that uh, population. Um, the problem is when researchers generalize beyond that sample to the larger homelessness population and fallaciously um, declare that it's a majority of the homeless population and uh you know meta-analyses after after meta-analyses um finds that basically there you know there is no real majority of the homeless population um many different services are set up to um help out specific demographics or what i uh later in my discussion i term the um the prime downtrodden there's a focus you know the, a group that that funding sources tend to cater to at one time or another and um you know uh some of my uh, veteran uh, respondents would say to me you know um how that that prime downtrodden group that there's that, that is catching all of the attention of the moment changes over time and uh, one of the respondents who had been uh, working in the field for, I think it was 21 years, um, he declared, you know, do you know what the uh, what the group that you, the easiest group to house used to be um, prisoners? And then he compared that to uh, people who are what I describe in the book, uh, chronically homeless and how you know, uh, anybody with their documentation that can prove that they fit these groups are actually the easiest to house, um, which that's basically the um, the premise of the book is that there's this bureaucracy that is very difficult to understand if you don't work in this industry. But if you do work in the industry and you can, um, you know, uh, voice the concerns of these workers then you know we may we could we really could um solve homelessness um you know in quoting uh samson barris who i uh i i talk about housing first in the book um a lot and he says you know we could house homelessness we could house the homeless tomorrow if we really wanted to we have the research to do that we just um it's it's uh, all the uh, policies and the bureaucracy and the misinformation that is uh, that is circulating that is really stopping everything. So my my book um, attempts to orient people, really anybody who wants to learn about homelessness, the topic of homelessness, um, the various uh, you know roadblocks that 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 are. Uh, that, that people encounter when they're trying to work through the system. Um, and uh, when I would mention my, my research to um, social service 
professors who have their students who are trying to learn to be social service workers, um, they were really excited because, you know, that's one of the biggest things that new social service workers get or new social workers, um, when they first get into the field, they become overwhelmed with, um, how the system is not necessarily designed to help as many people as we we might think. We might think um, that anybody who wants help uh, is, you know, sort of, uh, you know, trying to get in and, and eager to accept services when their services, you know, there's, there's so much research out there that says that people try to avoid social services. And um, so what I'm trying to do is, is show anyone who wants to learn about this, uh, notably social service uh, or social work students, how the process actually works. You know, <laughs> why do we see people on the streets when we know that there are services available? And um, what I term red tape warriors are these social service workers who are, you know, they, they're seasoned veterans at uh, being social workers and uh, they can make their referrals in a very creative way and advocate uh, through what I term assertive advocacy. When people uh, hit roadblocks in that housing bureaucracy, these um, red tape warriors will advocate on behalf of their clients that no, they do fit this criteria and they should be allowed to pass through the housing bureaucracy into housing. One of the biggest things is that we assume that the housing system um, is set up to help people, but really the housing system in many ways prevents access for the very groups that it um, attempts to provide service to. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Well, the um, I, I do my best with, um, you know, as a sociologist, uh, we use a theoretical framework. Um, I use uh, Michael Lipsky's notion of street level bureaucracy, which is, uh, you know, as we as I was saying, the there's the formal criteria and the formal um, avenues that that social service workers are meant to help their homeless clients navigate. It's supposed to work according to the formal system, but what, as I said, many people realize that it doesn't qu quite work the way that, that many people might expect. So these red tape warriors are able to um, assert and uh, build a relationship, get, get as much detail about their clients from the clients. Remember, they have to um, establish that trust in order for the client to divulge that information. And once they can actually get the information, these social service workers um, or red tape warriors can uh, better advocate on behalf of their clients uh, in order to get them into housing and, you know, satisfy programmatic service goals uh, to sustain their funding for the service that they work with. What is a red tape warrior? What does the term mean? Where does the term come from? Yeah, I, so red tape warriors are um, specifically, um, I point to some key respondents who were seasoned veterans. Um, and by contrast to that, I point early on in the book to a scenario where someone comes up to the, um, the, the doorway at this shelter and gets denied. You know, it's a, 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 a 
a young worker who doesn't have very much experience and the, the person says, you know, I, I heard that I can get help getting getting housing from you. And she said, and it's, at, it's based out of the shelter. And this worker says, okay, um, are you, and then she starts categorizing the funding sources for housing or the housing vouchers, right? So she says, you know, are you um, a part of a family who is experiencing homelessness? And the person says, no. And she says, are you a veteran? And he says, no. And she asked a few more questions that I detail in the book. Um, but essentially, she said, she, by the end of the conversation, she says, I'm sorry, we just don't have the funding sources available for your demographic right now. And she points over to the help wanted section, you know, ads in the uh, newspapers nearby. Um, and she's got some, uh, you know, local landlords that have uh, contacted the shelter and said that they were, you know, willing to, uh, you know, try to help people. But other than that, she basically denied them. Now, the uh, red tape warriors are people that are going to pick up the slack, those um, uh you know, outreach workers that might see them back on the streets and say, hey, you know, I thought that you, you know, uh, I told you to go talk to them and you got denied. Well, let me, you know, but you do fit this, actually. So you um, fit this programmatic criteria because you and I were talking and you you had told me that you experience, you know, um, you're there, you know, a lot of um, medical conditions, for example, is is very sort of hot right now with a, in terms of a what funding sources are, are providing help for. So they start reminding them, well, you told me you have issues with your back or you told me you have issues with this or that. And so then what that does is sort of build credibility in order to then fit the funding sources that are available. And it actually helps get them into housing. And so those red tape warriors are the ones that sort of, um, you know, they, they, they know their clients very well um, in detail. Um, in fact, uh, Jerome is one that I always point to, and he's one that really sticks out in the book, uh, among others. But uh, Jerome, for example, anytime we walked out of the emergency shelter together, there were hundreds of people on the streets um, around an area known as the block. And uh, where they, you know, the city kind of corralled all of the people experiencing homelessness. But um, and, and most major cities have something to this effect. But every time Jerome and I would walk to the streets, the hundreds of people would flock over to him like, is that Jerome? Is that Jerome? And, and he would um, I was always impressed because he knew everybody's name and he would point at people and say, hey, your cousin's looking for you. And, and point to a different person and say, oh, you better check your mailbox. I think you got a letter. It, it said it was from the housing authority. So it could be a, you know, a housing voucher or they point to a different person and you know, say, uh, you, know, you got another letter. You know, and, and so he was giving people details about, you know, he knew everybody's needs. He knew everybody's caseloads. Um, I asked Jerome at one, one, one point, I said, you know, why do people, um, insist on uh, trying to get help from you rather than other workers. And he says, well, basically, I don't pass the buck. And so other workers are, you know, make make referrals and sort of pass the buck. He said, I know people, you know, if somebody says they want, for example, people want socks, which is an underestimated um, need on the streets, people really need socks, clean socks. And so he says, if you know, um, one of his clients told him one day, you know, I know that but if I ask you for, for socks, you're not, you, you'll be back with socks. <laughs> you know, you're not going to pass the buck. And that's how he described uh, why people come to him rather than other people. But 
one thing that I want to emphasize is as a red tape warrior, readers of this book will um, sort of walk away, you know, and Jerome was unique. He was very special, but there are Jerome's different versions of Jerome's in every major city um, working these positions and advocating on behalf of their clients. And, you know, as I say in, in, in um, the end of the book is, is just that these, these were, these workers are literally saving their city millions of dollars by doing an effect, doing an effective job at housing their clients. But I can elaborate on that later here. <laughs> what is your book's contribution to the study of bureaucracy? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, um, with Michael Lipsky's street level bureaucracy, um, I'll, I'll let you know a little bit about that. Um, that basically, so teachers and, you know, another example would be police officers who are technically at the bottom level are of their employment hierarchy, often ex are able to exercise an immense amount of discretionary power. Think about the teacher that's able to give resources to one student, but not another student because they just simply don't like them. Or that uh, a, a police officer who can shoot somebody on, you know, on the scene playing judge during execution right then and there, even though they're only technically one part of the, uh, you know, one of the um, executive, executive branch. So they take a lot of, they have the ability to um, take on a lot of discretionary power with those who they are interacting with um, in, in, in the public. So basically social service workers, which is what I was focusing on, have a lot of discretionary power with their clients. Um, typically in prior research, you know, the focus is how inadequate or how people are denied services. But what you'll see is in my book, they go far above and beyond the expectations of their job. Um, they find ways to get people into services, into housing, um, even when the programmatic, uh, their job description doesn't um, require them to do, you know, some of these things. They, their creative discretionary power, they actually, um, you know, go, go above and beyond. Um, in fact, uh, uh, at one point in the book, um, we were sitting around um, eating lunch together and they all talked about how, you know, they don't do it for the, um, you know, inadequate pay we'll say, uh, but they used explicit, <laughs> explicit, but they, they said they don't do it for the inadequate pay. What they do, do that the reason they come to do their job is that they, they love to see the success of their work. And in this situation, um, particularly in this city, um, because of their housing first approach, um, you know, federal dollars for this type of um, initiative had expired and this city picked up through local funds, the, through county funds, that they were, um, that they would continue the housing first philosophy. And what that means is that the traditional way to get someone into housing was uh, that they had to engage in some sort of therapeutic intervention, whether it was for substance abuse or mental health or some other criteria. So essentially, think of, think about it. This is what I say to my students. Think about it. If you are the worker who, need, who, who is trying to help your client get into housing or get into services, what you're going to do is you're going to help them frame their uh, situation situation in a way that they are able to get access into 
uh, housing or into that service. So in many ways, you know, they need to, um, you know, uh, it's they're fitting programmatic criteria. And what many people um, sort of underestimate is that programmatic criteria is and the funding is very limited to certain demographics. And so uh, people like Jerome and these red tape warriors are very knowledgeable of the programmatic criteria and the housing options available. So what they do is they come up with what I uh, term fitting stories and they will maybe um, through narrative editing, um, they will sort of get their clients to elaborate on their situation so that they can gain more useful information to then fit them into the categories that will allow them through the process. It's, it's not, it's not necessarily, you know, like lying or anything. It's just getting to know and earning the trust and, and, and getting the most detail about their clients so that they can then advocate their deservedness of, of, of programmatic criteria. So that, um, is, uh, that essentially is a red tape warrior and Jerome and, and my key informants were definitely red tape warriors for their clients. What do you mean by the term, the block? Can you explain in greater detail? Sure. Um, I mean, it's a sort of a simple um, thing, which, you know, every major city has a version of the block. Um, it's essentially where uh, a lot of services are. Um, in this situation, there was about a thousand people that were at any given time, uh, according to my uh, respondents, that would be housed, well, provided shelter in the emergency shelter down there. And then there were also other services that were in the area. And this, again, sort of resembles uh, any uh, any major city. And then, so around this, uh, this particular area of the block, there was an additional 1,000 workers, I'm sorry, 1,000 um, people experiencing homelessness just in tents around the shelters. So there was about 2,000 people at any given point in time, um, but depends on the day because uh, the police would come and do their sweeps of the area and sort of scatter people around the city, but then they eventually would come back and, uh, you know, to the area known as the block. Um, so one sort of important note or one interesting little, uh, um, tidbit is Jerome, as we were walking around the block, he says, you know what, um, a lot of these people are not homeless. And I was very, you know, sort of shocked and, and asked him to elaborate. And he says, well, you know, uh, cause again, Jerome knew everybody down there <laughs> and he says, well, for example, he's like, if, if you see somebody that just looks like they're trying to dress down, but they're like clean, you know, um, you know, like they just took a shower or something. Um, he's like, uh, and I don't know them. So he's like, and he saw somebody at one point and the guy asked, as we walked by, he just turned to me. I don't think he knew who Jerome was either, but he said, he basically asked me if I was looking for drugs. And so Jerome overheard this and he said, Hey, uh, what are you doing down here? You don't look homeless. And the guy says, I, 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 I plead the fifth. And he says, okay, so, you know, um, are you, you, uh, you know, you, you really pressed him about it. And the, the, the guy just kind of walked away and Jerome elaborated. He, after we, we walked away from him, uh, Jerome explained to me, he says, a lot of these people just come down here for like uh, we call it vacationing and they might be staying 
staying out in suburbia in a house or something, but then they come down and stay the night down at the block to engage in illicit drug activity, illicit sex, and things like that. And I asked him how much of the of the uh, the people around the block, are, how many of the you know two thousand people that that were there almost daily. And he said about half of the people that are staying around the block. So that would be 500 people, according to his guesstimates. But that was, you know, I I think that, you know, um, warrants some more uh, research in some of these other cities. Um, but uh, so it, 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 and if you think about it, it's not, you know, people that are the violence that people talk about. Um, people that are experiencing homelessness are, are are most often, and the research supports this. They're they're off. They're most often the victims of violence rather than the perpetrators of violence. So it's 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 um, people that are coming down to that area that are, that are a big problem. What is your book's contribution to the study of social work? Well, the biggest contribution, and um, I don't, you know, I joke about uh, how I'm taking this bureaucracy that will sort of put people to sleep if you <laughs> take the time to actually um, uh, explain all the details of it. But I, I take pride in the, in the fact that I can summarize it pretty quickly in the book. And um, and so essentially that uh, the this whole notion of only fitting these, these certain categories, um, imagine, uh, you know, with my metaphor at the beginning of the book, I talk about how um, something that everybody uh, was, you know, familiar with in recent years was the COVID-19 pandemic and the rollout of vaccinations. Not everyone was eligible to get a vaccination. However, um, you know, so they 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 prioritize certain vulnerable groups. They prioritized people who were elderly. They prioritized, you know, um, certain situations over others. And yet people largely had to wait their turn in order to get vaccinated. And so I point to um, how, depending on the worker, depending on the situation, um, there were examples of, you know, uh, uh, young people dressing up to look elderly. And, you know, there were these, uh, and, and there was one where there was a snowstorm where uh, this car full of nurses who had vaccinate vaccines in the back seat knew that they were going to expire sitting in the snowstorm. So they just decided to start knocking on windows uh, in traffic, asking people if they would like to be vaccinated. And people said, sure. And so they got their vaccination. So there's this, um, sort of creative ways to um, make the best of the situation that uh, I draw the comparison to. Now think about that in terms of if you get the right worker, if, and, and I say this oftentimes to my students, if you and I are um, experiencing homelessness on the streets right now, let's say that your um, friends and family, uh, they, they no longer are available to provide you any help. Um, and, you know, the tragedy of, of experiencing homelessness is set in, you know, what would you do? And, and, and so if you're in this situation and you've got someone um, who is willing to help you, um, you know, that's where you know, these red tape warriors really pick up the slack and um, are able to get people to fit into the programmatic criteria. And um, there was, uh, they're, they're, they're experts at that because they've been working in the field so long. Now, I, I do want to uh, point to 
a few supervisors um, who one in, one in particular who said uh, with the other one around, and so they kind of seconded this. But he said the 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 best quote to me, which I think really articulates the situation that we're talking about here. Um, one supervisor said, "If services," and he says this to me. He says, "If services are too strict, then they often don't help as many people, and their their own um, services suffer." you know, because they're not helping people, uh, they, they need to, you know, satisfy certain outcomes to sustain funding and everything. But he says, if services are too strict, then they don't help many people because not many people actually qualify for services. And that struck me as, you know, this, this, you know, such a quote, because think about, you know, if, if the funding sources are, are meant to help house people, yet, they are so limited in their criteria that they actually prevent the very groups from gaining housing that their their system is designed to help then you know that, that's a botched system and what's necessary is these red tape warriors to get people through who know exactly how to help people how to get push people through this uh red tape and and what that does is it it helps people obviously but it also helps sustain funding and um and uh, satisfy outcomes that the city wants, outcomes that the uh, that the services um, are trying to, you know, perform, and is beneficial to to you know literally anybody in that situation. So um, that's the uh, that's the contribution that my book uh, makes is that it it is outlining that process, sort of how to get people help, and also really articulates the problems in people that are trying to um to receive aid but also you know the very workers who are meant to uh, help their clients receive aid you know one one of my service workers um uh, she wanted to go by um anna um I, all my respondents uh, chose their own alias um but anna says to me one day just in, in in just outright frustration she says you know i am employed to uh, to do this every day. Um, they pay and, you know, to train me on the criteria of what needs to happen in order to house people in order, in order to get housing. And she says, even it confuses even me. So how, and she's excellent, you know, she uses some choice words. How are these people expected to navigate this system? when it is so complex that it confuses even me i get paid to do this daily and you know she also pointed out that you know especially after can you imagine um trying to navigate such a complex system after experiencing trauma you know um and these other hurdles that that life hurdles that 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 people are are going through. I, I tell my students, have you ever experienced, and, and I would advise, you know, anybody listening to consider your functionality after losing even one night of sleep. You're not able to navigate a complex conversation, much less if your, you know, well-being and livelihood depended on you navigating such complex, you know, bureaucracies. So you know, how, to echo Anna's point, how are we expecting these people to navigate this bureaucratic and complex system in order to save their own lives in many uh, respects 
when people that are paid to do it can't even do it because, you know, and they know it quite well, they do it every day. What are the distinct features of worker-client relations in the world of advocacy on behalf of the homeless? What challenges does your book chronicle as regards these relationships? I, I love that question because um, that's exactly what the, the book does. Um, I, I, I chronicle many situations where um, the reader is meant to consider what it's like to be a, a worker and to try to get their clients through this uh, system um, in order to get housing or services. And so there are any any services with, um, you know, there was a uh, situation with um, a new uh, worker named uh, Bobby, and he's trying to prove uh, what is called chronic homelessness. And, and chronic homelessness is a category where, uh, you know, it, it, there's not a whole lot of science behind it. And, and, and a lot of uh, social service workers just ask anybody and they'll explain how short-sighted it is and, and, and um, all the limitations of it. But chronic homelessness um, loosely is someone who experiences uh, prolonged homelessness and also has some sort of um, uh, disability. And technically speaking, that to prove the prolonged homelessness, uh, the examples are someone who experiences, or the technicalities are someone who experiences homelessness for 12 months straight out of a year, which would be chronologically 12 months and a disability, or someone who experiences homelessness um, four times in three years. Now, those two things may sound straightforward to you, but then you start exploring it. And one thing that my book does is, that, you know, everybody loves the um, the charts, uh, and I designed it so that it would be easier to explain all this stuff. What that does not consider is people who may um, have, uh, you know, experienced homelessness for 11 months, for example, and then uh, gotten inside or stayed in a motel room, panhandled enough to get into a motel room for a, for a while, and then gone back out on the streets for another 11 months, and then uh, stayed on somebody's couch um, the next year. So it's another 11 months, but they never actually achieve. And that's the emphasis of that word is achieve <laughs> becoming chronically homeless because, or being technically chronically homeless because they're not experiencing 11 or uh, 12 months in a row. And so there's also discrepancies that I highlight in the book over people experiencing homelessness for, and I call them stints, where you're, you know, a time, you know, for three or four months at a time here and there. Um, but the the question of whether or not it was technically, you know, um, four times in three years, um, that is uh but once you try to advocate for that, you know, with a couple of people, you start, it doesn't take long before you start realizing it's like, well, wait a minute, what, what's the, uh, you know, what's the reason that it's four? Why not three or why not five or, you know, and there's not a whole lot of science behind that. But the main point about this is that someone can experience the spirit of chronic homelessness, which is prolonged homelessness and never actually technically, um, qualify for the, um, the the technicalities of being chronic homelessness and therefore the, it, it, they will never be eligible for housing 
that's the kicker is people are not eligible because they're not fitting these uh, criteria on technicalities. And that's where these um, red tape warriors come in and they start exploring and they build up the relationship and they say, well, you know, this, you mentioned this, you mentioned that. Um, there's something called the, uh, the SPEDAC uh, that is used in, you know, most states around the um, United States. It's, it's by now they're moving away from the SPEDAC because uh, a lot of, uh, you know, critic, uh, you know, it's, it, it, received a lot of critique but the um the higher somebody scores on the spat basically puts them at a higher priority to be expedited into housing so some of the questions um on here is um you know have you um do you owe anyone money and people like jerome when someone said no he would say well you know you told me the other day that you used some drugs and the person would say well yeah and he'd say well how did you pay for that? And they'd say, well, I didn't. And they'd say, so you owe them money? <laughs> and so he would advocate their way through in order to get a higher score. And um, and there's also this big technicality for chronic homelessness of the, the time on the streets. And so Bobby, getting back to Bobby, who was a new uh, worker, I was joking with him a little bit because he was sitting around um, looking at this document, trying to prove, he said, I've got a sheet of nights where people have stayed at the shelter. So that proves that they had experienced homelessness for these nights. But these other nights, we don't know where they went. And so he's got to call around the city to try to prove that this person, you know, was uh, still experiencing homelessness. And I, I joked with Bobby and I said, well, what do you, what does, does HUD, you know, think that they just snuck into housing or something? And I was joking with Bobby, but he, he looked back at me and he said, well, that's exactly what I'm trying to do because they won't qualify him as chronically homeless unless we can verify that he was not staying on someone's couch or had not panhandled enough to go into a motel room for the night because in either of those scenarios it would actually disqualify him for housing because he does not fit chronic homelessness so there are so many little um and i'm trying not to get into uh any of the you know, many of the bureaucratic uh, <laughs> uh you know things that ways that the system actually is meant to weed out people's eligibility and and um, filter them out. Um, but it's a very real part of the job is is verifying, you know, Jerome would write letters saying, you know, yes, I've been working with this person and they were staying under this bridge or they were sleeping in this uh, in this tent on this street or something. And he would verify that they had not, you know, snuck it into housing like I, like I had said. How do social workers working with populations experiencing homelessness cultivate professional legitimacy that's a great question because um as i said before the uh just because the um so so they're dealing with police officers um who might arrest them or give them citations on the street um when they do uh these uh camp sweeps where the police come in and they just run everybody off and basically take everything they have and, and throw it away uh, in a dumpster or the back of a truck. Um, and I have uh, examples of that in my, in my uh, book um, and the uh, sort of heart wrenching uh, moments that were, that were happening as these people were pleading for their belongings. Um, you know, this literally everything they have. So they had to establish professional legitimacy 
legitimacy in trying to deal with the police officers. Um, they had to establish professional legitimacy with other caseworkers at different organizations or different services. Um, and if they did not have that professional legitimacy, then they would be denied with their along with their client, right? And the client would, would not benefit from the services. Um, but if they were able to establish that professional legitimacy and even, you know, formulate a friendship or, or um, what Anna at one point called uh, loopholes, she could sort of expedite a referral to someone to get them through the system a little, a little quicker and easier, at least. Um, now, establishing professional legitimacy with the workers was uh, something that was uh, definitely on their minds, but they also had to balance that with the building of trust that they were establishing with their clients. Remember, the clients um, are not necessarily uh, jumping at the first chance to get into housing, as people may you know, assume. Um, there's a lot of research that goes into why people avoid social services. I mean, some of the first things that people think of when they hear the phrase social services is people that come take your children. Um, so there's all these negative uh, connotations with social services and, and, and there's rules to follow in, in services. And so there are so many people that, that actually avoid services and will avoid workers. So you have to have some finesse to actually build that relationship with um, your clients. So as they are doing that, they're, they're kind of playing the, um, the uh, middleman so to speak, or juggling the um, professional legitimacy with um, other agencies and the, the networks of uh, making referrals and gaining access for their clients, but they're also uh, finessing the relationship with their clients in order to make sure that they will actually go for it. Because in the end, th if the client does not you know, agree to the situation, then everything falls apart and the person is uh, still on the streets. So um the uh when that happens the worker will then try to uh, build that relationship back up again and the whole process um is likely to start all over again because uh maybe that slot has gone to someone else now um so the professional legitimacy uh suffers in that situation because they you know um they needed to go with someone else for that uh, very limited space that um, opened up just for a, you know like a window of time what does your study teach us about the role of advocates in helping persons experiencing homelessness to access medical care, mental health care, and psychiatric care? So that's a great question because um, many people might assume that there are, again, high rates of mental illness or high rates of um, substance abuse. Um, they'll cite things like, um, you know, the process of deinstitutionalization, which I, I do talk about in the discussion of my book, um, and how that process happened from the 1940s, virtually um, finishing uh, and ending uh, around 10 years prior to what is referred to as the new homelessness, um, where we had um, drastic increases in homelessness during the 1980s. Um, the institutionalization happened from the 1940s to the 1970s, basically. Um, and I detail this uh, in a lot of my uh, scholarly work too. But the um, the new homelessness, is, as it's referred to among um, the literature, is the process of um, how the demographics of 
homelessness changed very drastically, you know, along with drastic increases, you know, Chicago experienced increases of eight times the amount of people experiencing homelessness um, as a result of the defunding of HUD or the defunding of virtually all social services. They wanted to, or social um, welfare programs, they wanted to end all, so, all, all welfare and they were pretty successful at it. Um, and I have my students calculate the percentages that that were decreased and, and left. Um, so, but the real reason that we see such increases in the 1980s is because of the the rollback in funding, not the institutionalization. So, getting back to your question, um, this this assumption that there is um, high rates of mental illness and high rates of uh, addiction and high rates of um, homeless youth and high, high rates of, uh, you know, that, that all these, um, that all these groups are somehow a majority of the larger homeless population are not, uh, are not as credible as we might think. And it often depends, as I explained, um, it often depends on the way that they are sampled in that research. So you'll find research that finds high amounts of many types of homelessness, but the um, researchers uh, make a fundamental um, mistake of generalizing their sample to a population where not everything is the same, right? That's a fundamental um, statistical uh, problem when you're trying to assert and generalize beyond your sample is you need to, uh, you need to establish that, that that what you're generalizing to is um, a, the same population, when oftentimes it's not. If you sample from a uh, population that is uh, addicted to substances, then the way you generalize to the broader population is going to suggest that there are uh, you know, high rates of substances. Um, but if you only go to a... Uh, a detox facility to con to to sample from, then you know you're limiting uh, you know the, the credibility of, of finding high rates uh, in generalizing to the high the the broader population is very fallacious in terms of scientific uh, process. So um, when people are trying to fit the system that does you know cater to those um, assumptions, that's where it becomes pretty interesting because. Um, you know, uh, when they're taking the spadat with um, the outreach workers or these uh, any other workers, really, th the questions are based around vulnerability or based around um, their um, disabilities. And so what tends to happen is um, the worker is trying to get their score as high as possible so that they can gain access. But the client is uh, oftentimes reluctant to show that they are needy again trying to sort of avoid um uh, the whole notion of um social services and, and and needing a handout and and they're they're trying to portray that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps so the ways that the workers are interacting with the the clients are oftentimes uh this interesting um play because uh the workers are trying to do what they can to get the clients um access to housing by increasing their vulnerability score but the um clients may not under may not understand that's what's going on and so they'll try to act as normal as po normal as possible but so even if they are experiencing you know schizophrenia or um addiction issues or 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 medical medicalized uh, situations so 
what often happens is, you know, the again, trying to get that information from the client requires trust, requires a a, a, a vast, um, deep knowledge of what's going on in that client's life um, that Jerome definitely portrayed along with the other Red Tape Warriors. And so oftentimes they can ask follow-up questions to help clarify and then, um, you know, raise their score. And I, I catalog that in, in the book. Now, there's also this um, quote, it, uh, from Kate, who was one of the Red Tape Warriors. Kate uh, says that, you know, she, one thing that she despises is that the, um, they may not fit the vulnerability as high as they could, you know, at first when they are first, you know, experiencing homelessness, but then given enough time on the streets, that's when these clients will often develop chronic conditions simply because they're they're experiencing homelessness, they're sleeping outside, you know, in the weather, and they can even, um, you know, develop um, mental illness or addiction. Um, there's a lot of research that goes into addiction, which is, um, you know, of the, you know, 35 to 40% of people who are experiencing addiction on the streets. Within that population, about a third of them had that addiction before going to the streets, which means that two thirds of them developed that addiction after they went to the streets and, and experienced homelessness. So they're do they're doing they're taking part in these things as a, a coping a way to cope with their their situation of homelessness. So what um, you know, Kate was pointing to is that it, 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 she says it makes me sick because she knows that if somebody doesn't qualify, they eventually will. But then, you know, what kind of a sick system it is that where we um, we allow someone, we don't help them unless they are experiencing chronic uh, disabilities. So um, and and she, you know, sort of was reminding us that you know they eventually will just because of the lifestyle on the streets. What are the strengths and shortcomings of housing first strategies in advocacy for the homeless? Yeah, um, the housing first, and I meant to say this at the beginning of the um, interview. Um, I don't know if there's a way to uh, maybe put that this up front, but um, that housing first was the big reason that this um, study stands out because it was one of the it was credited as one of the first cities that um, that that funded housing first uh, philosophies um, at the local level. Uh, remember other other cities were were maybe taking part uh, due to federal funds, but um, they really um, experienced a lot of success. In fact, it was 94% of their chronically homeless population was able to be helped due to the, the, the um, housing first philosophy. Now the housing first philosophy is, um, you know, traditionally speaking, um, I think I said this before, where some people had to show signs that they were getting some sort of therapeutic intervention for either mental health or addiction services before they could be eligible to gain access to housing. Housing First flips that around and says, you know what, according to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, we people have to feel, you know, have their basic uh, needs met before they can then, you know, overcome their, you know, childhood trauma or things that are going on in terms of their mental health or addiction. So what we do with Housing First is they um, 
are able to satisfy those basic needs and then have the ability to turn to therapy um, afterwards. And what they found in Salt Lake City was that their um, their success measures increased dramatically and they were catching national attention for this. And I was fortunate enough to be in uh, in the area doing my uh, research at the time. Um, so that's a that's a big reason why, um, you know, this this research is uh, can be so powerful. Um, but that was uh, one of the things that my my red tape warriors um, often complained about, though, is they were seeing that that was changing over time. They were able to they expressed that they were able to experience the successes of housing first and they were housing people right and left. But over time, uh, they said to me things like it's not housing first anymore. And I would ask them, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know we we clash with other workers or housing managers or gatekeepers when we're trying to get our our clients into housing because they often expect them to be um you know having some sort of therapeutic intervention they expect them to have their addictions uh um you know kicked and no longer be experiencing addiction um and they they these housing managers will um expect them to, to have that prerequisite before giving, getting them housing. And so they, that's why they're saying that's literally not housing first, it's the opposite. And so um, it, it became a shift in how the system was working. You know, it was working and then it was, um, they had to go through more um, strenuous, arduous process of getting people through the uh, red tape. And at one point um, it became evident uh, as one of the, um, the directors, I uh, caught him on a smoke break and he says, well, um, among pointing out uh, many of the other things that the city was doing wrong, um, he, he says, well, it's hard to argue with um, an $87 million jail, which was the new uh, funding uh, project, right? So they were, instead of funding the housing first anymore, they decided to reallocate funds into jailing uh, people, which then... Um, eventually evolved into mass, uh, you know, incarceration of people on the streets. And, um, and sadly, that's become the answer that that city and across the nation, that's how we're dealing with a lot of this stuff, despite all the successes that they had experienced uh, during this um, research in this book. What are the distinct challenges facing persons experiencing homelessness with disabilities? What are the distinct difficulties encountered by advocates for persons with disabilities experiencing homelessness? Well, that's um, that's kind of overlaps with uh, what I was saying previously with the um, people who are experiencing mental health issues and addiction is that, ironically, these red tape warriors need to frame their clients as being vulnerable enough to fit programmatic criteria. And that's where um, that's a major part of, of, of you know, the, the uh, chapter on fitting stories. So um, they come up with creative ways to make someone appear more disabled or vulnerable than they, you know, may f may come across at first glance is maybe the best way to say that. What do the terms long enough, not sick enough, L-E-N-S-E, indoors discrepancy, long-term sporadic, finally chronic, and chronically homelessness mean? Well, those those terms are great because um, 
as I was saying before, the the charts in this book are really what everybody um, uh, when I present every people all, always uh, you know would would ask me where where they can find a copy of these charts. Um, and in terms of social social work, um, it's they're really helpful. Um, this particular chart really gets at um, some of the shortcomings of the you know framing. Um, the homeless population as in terms of chronic homelessness. Now, um, as I said before, with chronic homelessness, it's 12 months straight or four times in three years. Um, and people often forget and have a disability. So even if you fit the um, time frames of being uh, of qualifying um, as chronic homeless, then you also need to experience a disability. So if you and I are um, experiencing homelessness on the, on the streets, you know, uh, for years, you know, we may not qualify as chronically homeless simply because we got into housing or we saved up enough money to get into a motel for a week or so, um, or stayed on a friend's couch um, at the wrong periods of time. But even if we do fit the chronic homelessness uh, timeframes, we also have to prove through verifiable written documentation that we are experiencing a disability of some sort. So it's very ironic, um, which then, um, you know, not to say that these people aren't experiencing um, disabilities, it's that they they have to be framed in a way that qualifies. And that's where these red tape warriors are able to uh, build up the, the relationship, get as much detail as possible from their clients in order to then say, okay, they do fit these categories in order to, you know, qualify as, for example, chronically homeless or, um, you know, fit the programmatic criteria. Because if there's not funding for a for certain demographics, then they they're they're not meant to receive any help, and that that's when um you know uh, the the phrase that people use in social work is they fall through the cracks. Now the people that are falling through the cracks, we might assume are people that are either too mentally ill or um, too disabled or things like that, but it's kind of ironic because. Um, well, one, it's not enough to have a disability. You have to have written, verifiable, you know, um, evidence of their of their uh, disability. Um, when asked uh, who is that easiest to house, everyone, you know, within a blink of an eye, would say someone with all of the documentation. And so, <laughs> if uh, if 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 a person doesn't have documentation of their disability, then the worker and their client need to go out and, and get a diagnosis from a from a diagnostician. Um, now, here's uh, one um, person that had the record amount of stays or nights at the emergency shelter was a case that I call Sean Bowen. And he had over 3,000 nights where he had stayed at the emergency shelter, but he was still, you know, people were, you know, that's years. And the social service worker, they were all saying to each other, well, how has he been at this um, this shelter for so long and not received any aid? Well, the thing is, is he he scored very low on the spat. He would leave in the mornings 
and go, you know, either work or go off site and leave the block area, the, the area known as the block. And then he would come back at nights and stay there at nights only. And, and he wouldn't talk to any, any workers. And so the people that are, that are falling through the cracks, ironically, are the people that are not vulnerable enough. And that's where those terms come from, Vol um, you know, not sick enough um, or, um, you know, uh, they can't be framed in a way that fit programmatic criteria. And so that's why Sean Bauer was, you know, he was falling through the cracks because he ironically was not um, disabled enough and did not fit the criteria of the housing system enough. What does your research teach us about tenant-landlord relationships? What are the distinct problems in these relationships for persons experiencing homelessness? Now, see, this is where it really gets interesting. And, and, and my book, um, you know, uh, stands out because of this. Um, I was able to uh, follow around these workers as they were signing leases with landlords and having their clients um, sign in there. You know, um, a uh, red tape warrior named Roberto was um, able to, you know, he was a a political science um, student at a local university. And so he really knew how to finesse people. And, uh, you know, he, he would charm people. Um, and I really liked uh, Roberto because when I would uh, ride around with him in his car to the various sites, he would do what's called a housing um, uh, a check. And so to see if it was like, you know, safe enough and inhabitable enough to have their clients move in. Um, so they had this you know, he would establish these relationships with local landlords and even um, apartment complexes, you know, housing managers that are at apartment, apartment complexes. And I remember when when we walked in, you know, this uh, uh, front desk uh, worker said, oh, we love Roberto because he keeps our occupancy very high. And this particular front desk worker at the apartment complex would get bonuses if she kept the occupancy at above a certain, um, you know, percentage. So if she could keep it at 95% occupancy rating in the apartment complex, then she got a kickback financially. And it was working out with, um, you know, Roberto was getting her, uh, you know, he said he would say that he's treating the housing managers like clients as well, because he's finessing the, the, the housing managers to allow the clients to be then housed there. At, and they, the, the clients are obviously benefiting from getting housing, um, which, uh, you know, is, 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 you know, basically being able to live in the apartment. And the um, so it was a win-win all around. And, you know, when asked, uh, you know, what he, his job is, he goes and he says, I'm not the, uh, you know, health, um, I'm not the a health worker, you know, I'm not going around with a white glove, you know, trying to make sure everything's, you know, pristine. I'm just trying to see if there are any major problems. And oftentimes, if there were major problems with the landlords, then he would just have an agreement with them that they would fix whatever was the problem. And then the person would be allowed to uh, moved in, move in afterwards. Um, in some ways, or in some situations, he was able to increase the deposit amount to incentivize the landlord. He was able to also make the case that, you know, these are unlike 
you know, other tenants, um, you know, he could, these, these case managers were coming in, you know, uh, once a week or, or more, even maybe once a day, um, especially to start off with, but they were coming in to check on the uh, tenants and he would talk about how convenient that would be, you know, cause not all tenants, um, you know, operate in that kind of a situation. So landlords liked it because, you know, workers were coming by to make sure everything was, was, uh, being taken care of, that they were that the, that the tenants were being safe, that they were taking care of the property properly. Um, landlords were also able to increase uh, their deposit that they were being given, and so it became a win-win all around. Um, and in the book, uh, I, I close out the chapter by citing, um, you know, all this research that shows that many people, if they are you know, living next door to someone who gains housing access like that from the streets, one, do not, you know, are not made aware. Uh, they don't notice. And two, uh, much research points to the fact that, you know, um, crime does not increase. Um, however, when these neighbors are made aware that's that people are moving in from the streets, then the perception of crime increases, which is very distinct. So essentially what that means is it's a win-win situation for any major city to be taking part in this kind of a, um, you know, housing process with clients from the streets. Landlords benefit, they get more money, they are able to take care of the safety issues and make sure their property is uh, well-maintained because case managers come in and moderate and um, people gain housing from the streets. And this happens, uh, far more, um, and I meant to say this at the beginning of our interview, it happens far more than people realize, you know, there is, uh, you know, everybody can, you know, think of uh, the movie uh, Pursuit of Happiness starring Will Smith and how, you know, it's one man's, you know, um, way, the way he was able to work his own way out out of a situation of homelessness. But the average social service worker laughs at this because people are getting housed right and left in every major city across the United States. Um, for example, in LA, they are housing over 200 people every day. But the wow. reason that we see so much homelessness, especially in LA of all places, is because the people who are displaced every day are, it's upwards of 270 people every day are being displaced. So it's not an issue of, even if people are seeing the same faces on the streets, this notion of um, a perpetual state of homelessness is really inaccurate because every major city has people, you know, these red tape warriors like Jerome. Um, every major city, although Jerome was unique in his own right, but every major city is housing their homeless population at far higher rates than they often get credit for. Okay. The, the issue is we have a, um, the housing market and the um, wages that people are, the income that people have is not enough to pay, adequately pay their, their housing every month. So we have people being displaced, um, you know, at a higher rate than people are getting housed despite the record-breaking numbers um, that uh, every year, especially in the city that I did this, this research in, they were breaking their own records every year in housing people. But 
there were more people in the streets because people people were getting evicted at a far higher rate. Um, and this is my nod to um, to the book called Evicted by uh, Matthew Desmond. So this book and uh, Matthew Desmond's book Evicted kind of work in tandem in this regard because it's kind of like the sequel to that. What happens after people are evicted to the streets and um, what what they have to go through in order to um, uh, be resilient enough to get housing after being evicted to the streets and displaced and experiencing homelessness. How does your book advance our understanding of the trauma experienced by COVID-19 and during COVID-19? What were the repercussions for persons experiencing homelessness? What were the ramifications for social workers working with persons experiencing homelessness? Well, I really like this question because it gets at, um, you know, to kind of wrap up at the end of my book, um, I I quote, um, you know, how often uh, or how much the funding has increased um, in recent years as a result of the pandemic. So th the economic downturn that we that we saw in 2020 um, really called attention to the, the realistic um, reasons that people find themselves in a situation of homelessness um, on a massive level. Anytime there's an economic downturn, there's an influx in homelessness. And, you know, it, it concerns anybody who knows anything about homelessness. Um, fortunately, some gates opened up and we had some good news. We had very limited funding um, ever since the 1980s. Um, but as I've talked about through the whole book and as we talk about, you know, through this whole podcast was that there were um, only specific groups were targeted or what I call the prime downtrodden in the discussion of my book. If you did not fit those groups, you had you, you fell through the cracks like uh, like Sean Bauer did. However, there's been an unprecedented amount of funding um, since 2020, um, targeting homelessness. Now, what still has not, um, or still remains to be uh, solved, is this bureaucracy. Um, you can throw money at the problem all you want, but if you're only meant to help certain dynamics or certain certain demographics, I mean, to quote that supervisor again, who who also um, you know ran it by his uh, his his other supervisor. He said, if services are too strict, then they don't help many people because not many people actually qualify for services. So we can throw throw as much money as we can at the, pro at the problem. But what I wrap up the book with is if we are not opening up those avenues into going through the system and we still have those restrictive barriers, then that's also that's, that's still going to limit the people that are eligible for housing. And what I can see happening in, in in years to come is is in the future they will look back and say, well, we tried to fund all these programs for homelessness and it didn't work, and so therefore we will no longer provide so much funding in the future. So that's why I think it's a dire situation to not just look at. It. Oftentimes people just look at it as a as a funding issue, and it's not as simple as that. The issue is how many people actually qualify for services? How many people are allowed to be, uh, to move through the system? And that remains to be uh, something that we need to solve.
What are your book's recommendations for policymaking pertaining to homelessness at the municipal, state, and federal levels? I like this question because um, it gets at uh, the complexity of the issue, which is that when we, you know, it, it, homelessness is not the only issue where there's a tug of war over who's going to provide funding for it and in what ways. You know, there are countless ways, including the process of deinstitutionalization, where the federal government cut off funding and where the states were meant to or the, the local municipalities were meant to um, take over funding or replace that funding funding, but they never did, right? And that 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 is exactly um, what I see happening in terms of homelessness. There are some cities that I've worked in, and I've, I've worked in quite a few cities now, and some cities, the only funding that is being provided is federal funding. And that's through, you know, um, through HUD. Other cities like um, where this research took place, they are picking up the slack, and they're able to house people in record numbers simply because they are um, uh, adding to the ability of and, and removing the, the bureaucracy um, for housing first philosophies and things like that in order to help um, mitigate the problem. But if it, 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 it oftentimes does take and it's necessi necessary for local funds to be available along with maybe state funds, as it is in Massachusetts, a lot of state funding is, um, you know, the state kind of uh, intervenes, uh, uh, you know, here in Massachusetts, but it's not enough for just the federal government to be funding it, I guess is what my I'm, I'm trying to um, convey. Uh, it at, at all levels, um, we need to have a commitment. What does your research teach us about advocates for persons experiencing homelessness who are persons of color. How does race impact social workers and their clients? I'm so glad you're asking me this because um, this is a main point of the book that might get overlooked. What I mean by this is we're talking about how social service workers interact with their clients at an interpersonal level. So, at the discretion of the social service worker, the street level bureaucrat, they can pick and choose um, based on, you know, nothing more than their gut or the, the, the way that they interact or like somebody or not or see them as deserving or not. They can pick and choose who gets help. And there's a lot of research that I can point you in, um, whether it's research on who gets hired in the workforce or even in the book, I, I specifically go at um, you know, social service workers in this regard, that does show that um, particularly one source um, finds that white females are the most likely to get help in this kind of regard. Um, and this is other research um, that I cite in my book. Um, and that people of color are under uh under advocated for <laughs> so um which is a very big problem right so who are these um, inclined to help uh and and go the extra mile for and that becomes a really big question for uh future research um but existing research does does paint that picture as well how can non-american readers learn grow and benefit from your book Personally, I live in Canada. What aspects of your research are applicable to thinking about homelessness and homelessness advocacy in 
countries other than the U.S.? That's a great question because Housing First is international. You know, um, where I did this research here, um, they were getting credit on a national level for being some of the first um, uh, to implement the Housing First philosophy um, and provide funding for it uh, at the local level. Um, but housing first is everywhere. Now, here's the thing is just as the uh, workers in my study were saying that it's no longer housing first, meaning that, you know, they, they were desperate to convey that, yeah, we call it housing first, but now there's all this paperwork to uh, these hoops to jump through in order to get someone housing. Uh, they're expected to get this, you know, um, therapeutic intervention first and then get housing in or as a prerequisite to get into housing now. And it's like that's not housing first anymore, even though they're calling it housing first. Now, um, my research is not the first to find that. Uh, and I and I um, cite the other works in the book. But, you know, on an international level, housing first is being used uh, as a philosophy um, in many different countries. Um, Samson Barris um, has a track record with um, a lot of, you know, uh, the implementation of housing first is in various uh, forms and in various in various geographical locations of, you know, um, anywhere from. 85% success rates to, in uh, my study, um, they were experiencing 94% success rates of people getting housing and maintaining housing through Housing First. Um, so, but this Housing First is everywhere. What I want to emphasize is that many cities who um, advertise that they're using Housing First or you know the housing first model or any you know philosophy like housing first is I want to get their um, get them to actually be critical of, of is it actually housing first because a lot of people we know that it's a buzzword we know that it's um, we know that that's what uh, what people are expressing that, that is successful we need to be aware because we we throw around phrases like housing ready if someone's not housing ready that means that something else needs to happen first before they get housing. Well, that's thereby, you know, by definition, not housing first. <laughs> so um, I want to urge cities, you know, um, around on an international level, um, but also including the United States, you know, there's many cities that are conveying that they are in advertising that they're, they have implemented a housing first model when it, they, they really just are not doing the actual housing first model. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this work? Yeah, um, right now I have a lot going on uh, by working with local partners and services, um, social services. They hope to better understand why people experiencing homelessness avoid shelters and services um, and maybe you know leave and then come back after a while. Um, and many times they, they they walk into a service and they leave and after taking a look around, um, they 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 just leave. So we're hoping to better understand why. Um, I've also recently published a manuscript spotlighting a, a call to reform researching homelessness beyond institutionalized settings. And that gives a nod to um, the, you know, basically research that is dictated by the, the methods, you know, where people are sampled, uh, what populations are sampled and, and generalized and how really does, um, you know, uh, shape and, and 
misinform um, our research and policy. So, um, you know, if if uh, they're sampled on the streets, for example, um, I know the um, housing and urban development samples on the streets, but there are so many people that um, I have a chart in in the book that that shows that there are people that are living in um, abandoned buildings or living out of their cars or living with friends or living in motels that are not counted on any of these point in time, um, you know, uh, uh, street counts every year um, and in every major city. So the counts that we have right now are, are drastically underestimating the true homeless population or population that is experiencing homelessness. Um, and so it, it, my, my paper is meant to um, reform um, and, and you know, basically it, it, um, it, it, it reinforces a call to action that, that many prior works have made for decades now. So um, and also that paper also provides strategies to help expedite the process of IRB boards in approving such qualitative research among homeless street populations. And I hope uh, to encourage future research to inform what's going on with people experiencing homelessness beyond those institutionalized settings. Wow, I'm so impressed. Thank you. This was an amazing experience. I'd like to end by letting you know how deeply I appreciate your time and your thoughtfulness in all the questions we discussed and how blessed I feel for all your eloquence and erudition in all the answers you provided. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. As we end today's dialogue, I am your host, Ari Barbalat, signing off this discussion on the New Books in Sociology podcast has been undertaken with regard to the newly published book by Curtis Smith, Homelessness and Housing Advocacy. The Role of Red Tape Warriors, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2022. Curtis Smith is Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology at Bentley University. Thank you.